podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining. Mauro Cesar here for a new episode of Quantcast. You might recall last time uh, I anticipated that we would have talked soon again about market generator models. And here we are today. Uh, it is a subject of growing importance and rapid development. And at Ristonet, we want to keep covering it and with the advances in theory and applications. So today I'm pleased to welcome Blanca Horvath, who is lecturer at King's College London and is also affiliated with Imperial College as a honorary lecturer and with the Alan Turing Institute. Great to have you here, Blanken. Hi. Hi, Maro. Glad to be here. And then we have Gordon Lee, who is executive director of UBS, working on the XVA in Capital uh, Quant Analysis team. Welcome, Gordon. Hello. You both have been working on market generator models, though I understand from a slightly different perspective. Um, you, Blanca, have been conducting research at academic and industry level with a number of quants, and you, Gordon, are uh, looking into the implementation of these techniques in the field where uh, you're responsible uh, within your bank. Um, so could you, could you please give us an understanding of your involvement in uh, these type of models? Blanca. Yes. So why don't we start with what is a market generator in general? Um, I think we have been working on market generators consciously or unconsciously for a very, very long time. Um, the term market generator, as I understand it, is um, a sort of generative modeling technique closely um, linked to data, but with the specificity that we are modeling financial markets. So um, in this sense, we are modeling um, financial markets um, numerically, but now with the added feature that we can use deep neural networks or machine learning techniques to do so. So what is my involvement? Um, well, um, the, the question came up with um, respect to the deep hedging. And that was the original uh, way I got into looking into market generators. And um, later on, I, I went on to look at more applications of market generators and their properties. So that's my involvement. Mm -hmm. How about you, Gordon? So obviously, I work as a quant, um, mainly in the XVA and credit exposure um, area. And every day within the firm, we generate lots and lots of scenarios to do our XVA pricing, as well as our capital exposure, obviously. Now, those models haven't really changed in the sense that you have to define the specification of the models, how you calibrate it. Um, and for me, what Blank is doing is really important because it's about how do you kind of get rid of the straitjackets of the models that we have specified into actually something much more adhered to the real world. And then, so, so for me, it's part of one of the first of many steps of going through what we call quote-unquote model-free modeling. Obviously, it's still a model, but it's moving away from a pre-specification, for example, like a Hull White model or a LIBOR market model or a local volatility model. So I think that's a very important piece of work that moves and moving us forward. And that's why I'm very interested. There's a, there's a wealth of uh, market generator models 
uh, out there. Um, they come from outside finance in, in most cases. And so n- now they are being used in finance for, let's say, the first time and uh, just been uh, developed very recently in the past year or so. Uh, which one of them are most suitable for financial applications? Um, well, when we speak about market generator models, now in the sense of generative modeling specifically applied to pi- finance, then it is quite a, a, a different challenge than what we have seen so far. So generative modeling, um, as we have known it, um, was usually and typically applied to imaging and static um, problems. So that means um, um, images um, where we were trying to reproduce data or data distributions in um, as accurately as possible. Like deep fake. Right. So we can replace Indeed. your face mirror with someone else's. <laughs> or vice versa. So in this sense, there were um, GANs, which are generative adversarial networks. Um, There were variational autoencoders, the restricted Boltzmann machine, and all of them had different advantages and disadvantages. Generative adversarial networks have become in the past, I believe, five years or so, very, very popular because uh, of their extremely good performance on images. Now, when it comes to financial data, this is not necessarily what we are looking at. In financial data, we have a very different set of challenges, which I'm sure you're going to ask about soon. But um, there may be variational autoencoders. Boltzmann machines have uh, an advantage over uh, over, um, GANs, and it's not that important to make sure that the images are as sharp as the, the GANs can make sure. But even in practice in the financial industry at the moment, look, it's like for pricing and for kind of capital generation, we're still, you know, we I don't think we're using any of these, even GAN or even um, the restricted program machine, et cetera. We haven't moved on. Market risk today is still calculated using a set set of um, time series that is pre, you know, pre, pre-calculated and it's just um, sample from that and all the pricing is still based on predefined you know models with predefined specification i think in the area that you know what we're talking about in terms of more naturalistic let's call it time series generation i think the investment managers the hedge fund managers when you're trying to find strategies they are much more interested in those kind of things and the generative models allow them to experiment with different strategies that you know, usually they would only look at one um, path, so to speak. But now they have the ability to actually test it out over a very similar scenario, but with many, many um, paths of generations to test out the robustness of the um, of the policy, basically. Maybe if I if I may just ask uh, one more thing over here, we should be careful when we speak about market generators. What we mean by that, because um, technically speaking. Um, market generators also have quite a lot of parameters that have to be calibrated, and um, if we are if we are honest about it, classical models or Monte Carlo methods um, are just as well market generators as before. So, in principle, we should call everything a market generator that synthetically creates and generates data, artificial market data. 
that we then can use to make predictions. Um, what is different today is that these um, generative modeling techniques that come from a completely different field allow us to um, match margins, match distributions, or match even whole stochastic processes much more closely to observed data than before. And this is due to the increased computing powers and so on and so forth. So Blanca, what research projects are you involved in at the moment? The research projects um, concerning market generators that I'm involved in at the moment that have come to kind of a conclusion are twofold. So once I just finished a work with uh, Alexei Konratiev and Christian Schwartz on the applications of market generators, which includes um, making sure that data remains anonymous, that we detect outliers and uh, avoid overfitting, which is all very, very important in today's world when data is an important input into the training of the, of the neural networks. So that's one thing. And the other thing is closely connected to that, which was actually inspired by the deep hedging project. Um, there, um, it is a real problem um, that the available data samples from the real world are not sufficient in order to train a complex neural network such as the deep hedging engine. And this leads us to talk about the research you've been conducting just recently uh, with a number of co-authors. It's based on variational autoencoders. Could you tell us more about that, uh, what they are and uh, what is the purpose of it? So variational autoencoders um, are based on a, a similar idea to autoencoders and that we um, encode the data or the information that we see in a data sample in very few parameters. And from that, we rebuild so that we store that. And then from the storage data, we rebuild and resample new data samples that in distribution look like the original ones, but they're not just repeating the original um, samples, but they are genuinely um, producing new samples that are in distribution, hopefully, uh, indistinguishable from the uh, original samples. For that, to be able to make sure that the um, new data samples are indistinguishable from the old ones, we need to specify what is our objective, so what are the, what are the properties of the distribution that we're trying to match, and also um, we need enough data samples to calibrate all the neural network parameters. So the variation autoencoders are something close to my heart because when I started over 20 years ago in finance, one of the first job I had was to look at um, performance attributions for portfolios for, um, for investors, um, for pension funds, etc. And one of the things, the first thing that you know, they and I had to build was what is something called a Bayesian factor analysis. And what that does is, you know, you see the um, similarity is finding a set of latent variables that you don't know, give it a Bayesian prior thinking what you should be, and then run through a series and find out what it actually should be. So when I was reading through, so, you know, um, because variation autoencoders were, I know that Google suddenly picked up on it and a lot of people pick up on it because of his um, good properties. I was like, hang on a minute. I've seen this before. 
they just call it a different name. And surprisingly, the one of the person I collaborated with, um, you know, to look at these techniques 20 years ago, he relabeled himself as a, a now a machine learning researcher. So, so it's kind of funny. It's like what goes around comes around. So, one of the key things with a, you know, just to carry on what Blank is saying, what VAE and using my Bayesian factor analysis knowledge is that we really regularize the um, the systems, because when you what what is good about it is that if you don't use a Bayesian prior, sometimes you see it in the system is that it becomes kind of an what we call an error maximizer. So it will find some of the outliers. And sometimes the machine learning algorithm, if you don't tell it, it starts optimizing against its outliers and you get some freaky overfitting. Bayesian system, like putting a Bayesian prior really helps with that. And I think it's because of that, that robustness that, you know, why version, you know, the VAEs are still very popular right now. Although not as popular as I think they should be. <laughs> well, still time for that. In a practical sense, the, the advantage of the variational autoencoders is that they work with a lot less data samples than GAMS. I think for financial modeling, that's their main advantage. Um, because GAMS are known to, to be notoriously data hungry in order to, um, to tune the parameters, in order to make sure that the um, generator and the discriminator are somehow in balance. All of these things need quite a lot of training and quite a lot of um, data samples in particular, which is not always available in, in, in finance. The reason that variational autoencoders previously were not that popular was that they were producing blurry images. Now, in our case, this is not necessarily important anymore. What we care about is that we produce data samples that in distribution look like the ones that we have at hand. How long it takes you to train you know the model right now if you to run it on a reasonable time series so we use uh, something like 250 data samples and already it's working which is which is quite impressive because um compared to guns you would need tens of thousands to be able to train them i mean in terms of time like how long will you press enter on the machine um seconds so it's really quick it's really good. So th this is how autoencoders compared to Gantt. But how about uh, how about a research to Boltzmann machine, which has also been uh, popularized uh, in a paper published with us? Right. Uh, so Boltzmann machines are also very very good in the sense that they also have this um, encoder structure. So they they have this bottleneck structure where you store the information in a very few parameters and from that you're rebuilding the new data samples so they they are more on the side of um, autoencoders than than GANs would be. So much of the theory behind these models have been uh, introduced a few years ago um, so GANs have been around for um, I believe about 15 years or so uh, balls on my machine maybe maybe uh, almost 10 or something like that just the theory, the first papers appeared on that, maybe not with applications to finance. Um, but in finance, it's just happening now. Uh, why do you think this is the case? I think before we answer that question, I think one of the things that with Blanca's work is you haven't mentioned the secret source. The, the, it's not the application of the variation autoencoder that is the novelty here. I think it's the use of signatures that is actually the real novelty. 
in 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 this in what um, Blanca's research does. Well, um, and signatures are definitely not due to me, um, but they were introduced by Terry Lyons from Oxford University, who is also a co-author in the paper alongside with Hans Buller himself and uh, Ben Wood and Imanol Pelarizavirbas. So we we all work together on on trying to make sure that we um, manage to um, construct an autoencoder, a variational autoencoder, that um, that works with an astonishingly low number of data samples um, and is able to produce paths in a way that is um, consistent with the time series structure of stochastic processes. All of this is really um, using the theory of signatures, so this all goes back to Terry Lyons. And uh, you know, it's it's always a beautiful thing when 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 nice theory comes together with very practical applications. So, can can we have a an intuitive explanation of signatures? Shall we try? I'll give it a try, and then Blanky correct me if I got it wrong at any Go one ahead. time. Yeah. So, Miro, tell me, how do you get to work today? Where do you come from, and where you got to? <laughs> I got the bus from Camberwell to yeah. Liverpool Street. Okay. So if I were to describe to you how, like, you know, in exact path, like, you know, by meters by meters, how you describe it, you, you could describe it a couple of ways. Because if you took the bus, you actually can tell me which road you turn into, how you get there, etc. right? But that's still cheating because there are roads that you can point to. So imagine if I just plot your movements in just a series of XY coordinates, right? Mm -hmm. And then you sample it like every meter that gets you what, in essence, is a definition of a path. Now, what you know? How can you, you know, now? If you want to use that as information, you would have to think, okay, I can just send you the samples like hundred points or whatever, or two hundred points, and just send it to us and say, hey, this is how I got there. But the theory of signature, it's much more than that. It basically says, okay, I can actually extract the information about the quality, for the want of the better words, of a path by looking at a series of, I don't want to use the word statistics, but it can become a statistics. So for example, what's the beginning and end point um, of a path? The distance between that, that's the first order. If you draw a rectangle around the path, and then you look at the area above and below, that's a another order of the path. Now, that is why it's get interesting because at the third order, fourth order, you cannot make those kind of um, geometric explanation anymore. So therefore, but what I can say is that if you keep doing that, you would eventually be able to recreate using the statistics where you actually have traveled. So the point is that it doesn't matter how you've traveled, we can break down the quality of your path by a few coefficients. And then it's these coefficients that Blank is using in addition to the autoencoder that makes it so more powerful. Am I right, Blanca, more or less? I, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with the, with the intuitive way how you're explaining that. And I think this is really, really the essence. And uh, I urge you to ask Terry um, uh, more about it because uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating how he explains it. But mainly, this is it. So signatures are an extremely powerful way um, of encoding the features of a path. And one of the main um, properties of signatures is that if you take enough signatures, so the entire series of uh, 
of signatures, then it uniquely characterizes a path. But in a way that's um, concentrated on the most important parts. So as, as, as Gordon said before, the, the increment of the path, the Levy area, which in a sense in the end will correspond to the quadratic variation and so on and so forth. And it concentrates on, on the most important parts. So it's in, in some sense capturing the most important bits. And by doing that, is going to be more parsimonious as well? That's the point. It, it captures the most important components of the path. If you take more and more, it will converge to the original path itself. But there's one very special property to it, is that it's agnostic to resampling. So there is, in contrast to most statistical methods so far, which basically assume that you have uh, um, some kind of mesh size in which you're sampling, your data, you have to set um, some kind of mesh size and from that you, you assume that your data is coming in in regular intervals. Here, signatures, they have absolutely no assumption uh, regards to how regularly or how often you, s you observe new data points and they remain consistent if you have tick data, if you have um, data that comes in extremely irregularly, if you have data that comes in weekly or daily or even by the minute, the more data you have, of course, in these sampling points, the more closely you are able to describe the path. But the fact itself that you're able to consistently model a, a path is really a very, very important feature of the signature. And the other key points is that with other techniques, like for example the you know the RBM, etc., is that it only converges to the marginal distribution. So, i.e., the one time step or how many times that you want to do. A signature converges to the entire history of the path that you're using, and that is a key difference. You know, you by by doing that. So, going back to your example of how you got on your bus, it's not looking at like you know next ten meters or how you traveled. You're looking from when you left your house until you got here. It is the whole convergence. And that's a very powerful technique. So what is the, the application of this? Uh, how are you using it? So um, with Imano, we started working um, on looking into um, producing artificial data that we could feed in to the deep hedging engine. Mm -hmm. um, Let's recap what, what that is, although it's very popular now. But right, I'm not sure that it's uh, um, it, that it's necessary to to tell people about the deep hedging because I think everybody knows about it by now. <laughs> but um, just as a recap, um, hedging can be done uh, as as um, Hans Bula, Josef Teichmann, Lukas Gonon, and Ben Wood showed it in their paper. Um, hedging can be done also by neural networks. And it was demonstrated on uh, the Black-Scholes model, it was demonstrated on the Heston model, and the hedges that came out were um, consistent with the theory we know, and it went beyond, so you can also even add transaction costs and so on and so forth. And now the, the, the big question was, all right, if, if we want to go beyond classical models, if we want to provide training data that looks like actual market data, how do we do that? And then the first question is, well, is market data enough that we have? And that 
kind of um, raised a lot of other questions. Now, there are many, many solutions out there, and that's why um, this is just one possible solution to the question among many. Um, but the reason that I believe that this solution is very powerful is that it addresses many of the challenges that Financial Times series generation um, raises. For example, um, you don't have that many samples available. So you need mm -hmm. something that can be trained on very, very few samples, but is able to produce more samples of the same sort in order to feed other um, neural network applications that are typically data hungry, such as the deep hedging engine, but there's many more applications out there as well. So, I mean, we, we don't necessarily need to focus on deep hedging that much. Of course, this was how the, the question came up, but there's many other applications, in particular neural network type applications that need enough data samples so that um, the neural network converges or that it's trained properly and where not enough data samples are available. So um, this was basically how um, we started working on this. If you think about it, um, the past 20 years of data, if you look at them daily, it gives you something like 5,000 data points, which is mm -hmm. by far not enough. So you really have to try to understand how this um, works and how the distribution of the data came about and how would you make sure that you have powerful feature extraction methods such that you're able to generate more. Now what's what's really fascinating about this and this is uh, due to this group around uh, Terry Lyons and uh, including Imanol um, that there's there's a lot of theory around th signatures that just needs to be handpicked and is almost ready to um, be presented. Um, the question, we understood very well what it means that two distributions are close to one another in a static sense. We also understood very well what um, generative modeling means for, for images or, or, or other static applications. But... Um, what does it mean that two stochastic processes are close to one another? What metric should we be looking at? Um, what does it mean that we're looking at a two-sample test, such as the Kolmogorov-Smirnov test, um, but now um, for whole paths or whole stochastic processes? This is not very straightforward, in particular because when we are um, going from one distribution to a whole stochastic process, the problem becomes infinite dimensional Im uh, immediately. And signatures really provide an answer to this. Um, the only question is when we have had the signature transform and we do everything in signatures, what do we do with that? The autoencoder gives us out a signature back. Do we transform it back to paths? or do we keep working on the level of signatures? So Imanol has a very nice other paper about how to keep working on the level of signatures, which I believe is, is a very, very intriguing way of starting to look at um, finance from a bit different perspective, model-free. Or of course, there's um, ways to invert back the signature into um, sample paths and everything can go on as usual. Gordon, and from your side, uh, 
what applications are you looking at? So for signatures or for the variation autoencoders? Let's do the variation autoencoders. So the data generation itself is very useful for namely for finding strategies in the future. So for example, a bank always trying to sell um, profitable like factory investing, you know, to, to investors to show that, you know, it's to find risk premium in the market wherever that may be. That's always going to be something that is attractive to not only to banks, to structuring desks, and also to investment managers. So that's a very immediate um, interest in, in data generators. In terms of l larger scale of derivative pricing and hedging, I think we're still at the beginning of like really decide what it means. Because currently, derivative hedgings and derivative pricing is still dominated by the uh, you know, the current Markovian models like Heston's local volatility, etc. It's going to take a lot, lot of convincing, you know, to, to get the quants working there to abandon those models and move into a new world. Um, and also maybe the what maybe the the way that I just said is not quite right. It's not abandoning. Is how do you make it make the two um, coexist coexist with each other in a meaningful way? I think. We're still in very early days in terms of practice, but I would say this: in the past, like if you look at FX trading and you look at cash equities trading, it's literally from a very few years from where you still have traders going up and down and say buy sell cables and you know buy IBM and to whatever, switch into electronic trading and into algo executions in a very very short amount of time. It is with this in mind that, you know, given the direction that we talked about, perhaps this is a first step towards that. And to what extent does can that arrive to? I mean, can can these models replace uh, classic models, let's call it that way, um, in its entirety? Or just just a quick um, statement about this. So, replace. I mean, what is important here is that we are now uh, in a position that we're able to match more properties of financial markets than before. So we're able to do modeling in a much more precise way than classical Markovian models were able to do so far. Some of these things can be achieved with um, stochastic volatility models already. So. In this sense, what we have seen is that rough volatility models, for example, are much, much closer to actual market behavior than Markovian models were. So for many of these applications, the understanding that we have about rough volatility models, for example, already improves a lot our understanding of markets. And then, um, of course, we can go um, into fully data-driven um, modeling. But in each situation, what is important here and what we are um, what we are realizing more and more is that what we can do now is um, pathwise considerations of the market directly, whether it's by rough volatility, whether it's by signatures and rough paths, um, whether it's by um, market generation by market generators per se. In terms of going back to whether you're going to replace um, the the model, I think the correct you know. I think it splits the problem into two. One is the pricing of derivative instruments in the future, and one is the practice of managing um, derivative instruments in the future. 
I think they're two slightly different things. I do not foresee the pricing for accounting and books and records for derivative instruments to change from the classical models for decades. I, I don't see it. The reason why is because they, they are very neat in terms of saying these are the calibration instruments that we have and this is the result, resulting price because there is a replicating strategy. In practice, obviously, a trading desk doesn't work that way. Um, the example I gave to people is like, listen, if a if classical model works all the time, why do you need to have risk control and market risk? Because I can sell you everything, I make a little spread, and it's completely risk-free. Clearly, that's not the case. And that's why you need to look at the derivative desk as a kind of an investment problem. And it's precisely because of that, the practice of investment like um, derivative management with these techniques potentially could change by taking account of things that is outside the risk neutral measure like transaction costs, liquidity constraints, uh, what else is there, capital cost. The traditional things that in my day job in XVA kind of comes into. Now you have an opportunity for them to come in directly within you know, the management of the derivative books. And I think that's the exciting part. One last question before I let you take your path home. Um, what What is the next step for your research, Blanca, on this topic? I think understanding better the connections between the P measure and the Q measure, because one of the consequences of what Gordon just said is that we, we have to start seeing um, pricing models more from um, a portfolio um, optimization sense and uh, vice versa so that there's a, a lot more connection going on between the two worlds and and understanding how these fit together um, in some sense rough volatility models are a very very good proxy for that where we understand quite a lot of things but there's a lot of work to be done and what's your expectation of uh, how these models, these solutions, can help in your in your business, in your daily job, Gordon? I think we should look at, you know, looking at these models, it, part of the whole agenda saying, you know, how do you move to a more real world, how to find out more optimal strategies. I think it's about finding new policies, quote-unquote, and I use that in a technical sense, for the, you know, the traders and investment managers to optimize the investment decisions, which is in essence what they do. So it's so a move away from what is the price of this, but what actually should they do in terms of really like, you know, the, the action, so to speak. Like, like playing chess and beating Go, like AlphaGo did. What is the optimal moves that people should use? Right, the optimal move, but maybe one more thing to add to that is, um we should try to understand what is happening here because many of these uh, generative models do not take into consideration um, arbitrage um, opportunities. They do not make sure that everything is consistent with what we understand about financial markets so far. It is not quite well developed yet what uh, happens if anything goes wrong, how to risk manage these, these things. And in this perspective, classical models remain quite important in our understanding how this should be behaving in order to um, get a better understanding of more complicated models. And I think this is a key point as well, like 
these steps are very important and these research are very important in moving us forward. But I think we need to temper the excitements a little bit saying that at the end of the day, these techniques, even though one was saying the restricted Boltzmann machines and auto variation autoencoders in finance, these are still very, very early days before the widespread adoptions within finance. Blanca, Gordon, this has been extremely interesting. Thank you very much for uh, being here today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening.